This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Imagine that we're gathered around the ritual fire in preparation for the year's final hunt, the one that will sustain us through the long and barren winter the spirit leader presides. She sings and dances, paints images of our prey on the cave wall and tells stories of past hunts. Our survival depends upon the success of the work we all do together with this dancer, poet, singer, storyteller, healer, alchemist, teacher, our liaison to the spirits working for the community and its practical relationship with the gods. This time together around the fire links the past and present and future to our traditions and knowledge. Our job tonight with our spirit pathfinder in this sacred circle is to join us all to our eternal story, spreading the knowledge and strength and sacred power we need to survive in our mysterious and threatening world. Over the past four decades, this episode's guest, Cynthia Winton Henry, and the worldwide community she and her collaborator, Phil Porter, have helped to grow, have sparked a reconvening of the circle of dance and song and story that animated and nurtured the nascent human community we just visited. Now, she likes to say this movement, called Interplay, was a spontaneous manifestation, and well, I'm sure there's some truth to that, as is often the case, there is much more to this story, as you will hear in what follows. Part one, body and soul. So where are you calling from? Today, I live in the Sacramento area on the ancestral land of the Nisenan people, unceded lands near Kumayo, which is the name they would have given to the American River which means Roundhouse River, mm-hmm. and I honor those ancestral peoples, their struggle and our collective struggle to return to them their, the lands and their birthright. And I'm talking to you from Alameda, California, which is the traditional ancestral lands of the Ohlone people and on the edge of the ancestral waters of the Ohlone people right here. The hardest question that I ask almost anybody is the following. How do you describe what you do in the world? Thank you for naming that. It's a hard question because when you're operating outside of traditional roles, it's it's more complex. And for me, I describe myself first as an artist. I think my worldview is that of an artist. I think visually and kinesthetically and multidimensionally, seeing composition and creativity and everything. And I am also a dancer by training. So my worldview is deeply influenced by perceptions around movement, moving life. I'm a theologian. My history of curiosity has been largely about body and soul. And I'm also somebody who's deeply interested and delighted by healthy human designs, practices and patterns of human behavior that seem to create connection and health and a general sense of being hooked up with everything. So when you design, are you talking about material design or social design or all of the above? Yeah. My my feet are firmly planted in physicality. Mm -hmm. 
So by that, I'm always curious to see where my body is and where bodies are as the starting point. So I'm really interested and have, I think I'm under an instruction about remembering and relearning earth-based spirituality, practice, design. I find deep resonance with ways that respect earth and come from how do we design in harmony? Yeah. So now the second hardest question, often because there's so many chapters, what's the story of your coming to this work? So I, I want to say that I'm the co-founder of Interplay, which is a now going on between 30 and 40 years of practice. And that was rooted in first being in a dance company called Body and Soul Dance Company in my 20s and early 30s where I met my colleague, Phil Porter. And preceding that, I had some amazing mentors who saw something in me, even in public high school. So I just want to shout out for strange teachers in public high schools. I had a dance teacher who saw me, who drove me a really long ways to San Diego from Los Angeles, Michael Taxer, who had been a Martha Graham modern dancer and who had become a Presbyterian minister of all things creating a whole community of dancing humans, remembering re and retelling these ancient stories. I got to meet him when I was 16 or 17. And she also put in my hands a book by somebody who became my mentor, a guy, a crazy weird guy named Doug Adams, who was a professor of Christianity and the arts at Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley. And it was about congregational dancing and had a Snoopy on the front doing a happy dance. So it wasn't like this really deep, profound stuff. It was like Snoopy. But the fact that these people saw me in high school, Bill, is I still am in awe of that when mentors see you. And so I came into this through people seeing me and and seeing some kind of question that I wasn't able to articulate. And eventually at UCLA in the dance department, I was asking these questions in such a way that it led to two profound things. And one was my draw to an exhibit called African Art in Motion. And that museum exhibit was a very alive thing. And it caused me to want to go to West Africa to, to be in a place where people did remember art in motion. And the other thing that happened was that I read Ruth St. Dennis's book because I asked my teacher, my dance history teacher, what happened to the dancing body and soul? And she was like, this is not a time when you were talking about soul in the 70s in, in colleges. And she handed me this book by Ruth St. Dennis, one of the founders of modern dance. She said, okay, read this. And I'm reading it one day. And I had this really bizarre, wonderful experience where I heard a voice. I was really moved to listen out of what I was reading. I got, I felt drawn to my knees. I had energy come into my, through my head. I was moved by this energy and kind of awakened to a sensation of everything, being unconditionally loved in a neutral state. And I asked, after this was happening, I was like, just wanted to serve that. I asked, wow, well, how can I serve this love, this thing? And what I heard was, well, hold dance and religion together. And I was like, okay. I'm in UCLA dance department. I wasn't adverse, but I was also a questioner and always have been of religion. That led me to seminary. And that led me to Body and Soul Dance Company. And that led me to Phil Porter. And to then trying to weave a path out of questions that only a few people seem to be 
asking at that time. So seminary, is that a place where you found a lot of support for this idea of body and soul and dance? Unusually, at Pacific School of Religion at the time where this man Doug Adams was, happened to fall in at a unique point in its history where it was, this is like just post-60s, 70s and 80s, and people starting to reflect on more experiential forms of learning, right? And I think bodies in general actually know the stuff that I'm playing around with. Mm. It's not really that far off if once you experience it, right? And once it, it, it doesn't seem like it's a, it's kooky. But so these people were doing that work and excavating in the Hebraic and Christian traditions, the histories of the people and how they were behaving, not just the Puritan and Protestant and Catholic methods that we are associated with. So this deeper stream of wisdom that is recorded biblically, it's recorded in bodies, but it doesn't always show up in institutional language. But yes, it was very supportive. I found my mentor. I found, I found colleagues. I found other artists at this time. That has since waned because this is a place where some of the movements around GLBT wisdom around spirituality took root in a number of theological centers in our country. And that plus the clashes of white Western methods and racism, it's like a very hard conversation in these places to be from a lineage and yet in a shock about the lineage So I got ordained, but then eventually after 20 years, I did renounce my ordination because I really didn't feel like as a dancing body and as a liberatory body, I could keep vows with practices that that do that, that, that have behaviors that we're still beholding to, even though we ordain all forms of queerness. We can ordain it, but we are still practicing or struggling in white methodologies that refute the body. Mm So it just occurs to me that to withdraw is as powerful a spiritual act as it is to basically give yourself up to a a spiritual practice. It's, in essence, integrity is at the, has to be at the core of all those relationships. And so that must have been hard. And, and I can imagine it also fed what you did after that. I like that. I'm always suspicious of words like integrity and authenticity. Mm -hmm. You know, I use the word feels true Mm -hmm. in me, but I also appreciate you saying that because I do think very many people are in a landscape of struggling to be true, Mm -hmm. not knowing how. Mm -hmm. It was painful. It was a kind of a divorce that I went through. I didn't just withdraw. I went through a process. Mm -hmm. I spoke to people. I was in a circle and I told them what I was doing and asked them to agree to it. And I found that some accompaniment with with some former ministers who were Black and other people that couldn't abide any longer in their vows. So I I take some inspiration from people like St. Francis, who also renounced his vows, and is still regarded as a signature wisdom for health and coming back to the earth, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm just one of those many people that I think are everywhere. Sometimes it's easier just to step out or step away. For me, I had to do it in mind, body, heart, and spirit. Yeah, I hear that. 
a significant part of the path you're describing became something called interplay. You want to talk about how that manifested? Uh, and for those people who are unfamiliar with that, in the telling, if you could give a sense of what it is and how it works. Yeah. Interplay is an active creative approach to unlocking the wisdom of the body, which is the kind of the tagline that we tried to come up with for marketing, <laughs> because you want to be able to say something. <laughs> it's an active, creative approach to unlocking the wisdom of the body. My organization, nonprofit, is called Body Wisdom, Inc. And so that is a pretty big, important piece. But I have to just shout out my beloved colleague, Phil Porter. The fact that Interplay grew out of first our two bodies and a kind of love affair of creation, of making together, and that we pretty quickly created a performance company called Wing It Performance Ensemble in the 1980s. And one of our first performances was called God, Sex, and Power, and it was completely improvised. And we did it in a theater in in San Francisco. And I remember there was an earthquake. Wow. <laughs> and our dance reviewer was there, and she I don't know if she was shook up by the earthquake or by us. Now, there's a YouTube video of this performance, which has survived history, which I will play for you here and try to describe a small bit of what is transforming that you can't see. So, close your eyes. It's near the beginning of the piece. Cynthia and fellow company member Deborah Weir romp around the stage, prancing delightfully in serendipitous folly, flapping their arms and hands, teetering right on the edge of silly, silly, silly. But then, as the sweet piano gives way to a deep, darkening, drum and throaty tuba thrummed, the two nymphs transform into a grotesque collage of faces and fingers and limbs distorting and growing and spitting in anger and contempt. This continues until the audience joins in with their own screams and jeers of derision that builds with a mounting frenzy that is clearly being enjoyed. Then one dancer shoves the other aside and then begins slowly at first and then faster and faster to grow and expand, blowing up and out and then exploding into a fractured, screaming, arm-flailing shrew thing. And then, just as quickly, turns back into a slightly lumpier, bumpier version of the silly, prancing folly that started the whole thing off. Part two, interplay. So my work is improvisational. And even when I was in college at UCLA, improvisation at that time was a, a method, but it wasn't regarded as a form or a system. It was like something we all did, but 
you wouldn't say you were an improviser. Mm -hmm. So part of my work has been actually to figure out how to create a performance with an audience that has some value and merit and form and shape and content, right? Without being instructed. So Phil and I designed a series of methods or forms, art forms, in in the areas of movement and voice and storytelling and stillness that allow individuals, duos, trios, groups to create on the spot. And what we discovered in workshops and as we brought Wing It into form as our laboratory is that people are incredible in their performative skills. If they have enough affirmation, if they have a sense of curiosity about inventing and they just have a little form. So the form that we use now is called I Could Talk About. And it's, you know, these are like icebreaker forms, but people just going around in a circle, just saying one thing that they could talk about going around three or four times, and pretty soon people have said some something important. Mm. And then we don't talk about it, right? So part of the yeah. genius of interplay is that it's a platform, it's a space for letting things rise, but we don't force things to be products. We don't, we play with it. We see what's there, we play with it, and we might reflect on it. And occasionally we put it in a form that is repeatable, so we in with Wing It, which is has been practicing and has a living community even today, though we're not meeting together these 30-some years later, Wing It really became a place where four these four powerful things rose. First, we were dancers, and so learning to dance together improvisationally in ways that were appreciative for the experiencer and the witness. And then out of that, our voices and our stories wanted to rise. Right. It's like it wasn't enough to just dance. And then are we supposed to be characters or create theater? Or, and eventually we learned the easiest thing was to tell our own stories and figure out ways to tell our stories together. And so we did that. And then singing came up and we all through this, we had a brilliant improvisational music supporting us. And so at a, some point, Interplay started like branching out into workshops and people started experiencing it. And then the wisdom of the body that was coming through us wanted to be coalesced, and it did coalesce so that it was teaching us what it wanted, what bodies want. And we identified that and wrote it down. And that's now part of what people are experiencing in interplay trainings and workshops. Core principles that come from the wisdom of the body that bodies can do. They're not just thoughts and ways of playing together that create phenomenal connection to self and others. So what are some of those core principles? The first one is what we call easy focus. So our bodies can be very focused and intent and are trained to be that way a lot of times in academia, religion, medicine. But we can also be much more of an in an easy focus that includes your thinking, but is more spacious in the way that we're physically looking and sensing things. So as soon as bodies move, easy focus turns on. You can't be keep your focus, hard focus. That's important because in order to access the whole system of our body, you have to be able to open to it. <laughs> you can't just be looking outside, right? So easy focus gives us access to noticing 
our whole system. Noticing is a big practice for us, as it is for many spiritual practices. And then the, the second thing, and I won't go through the whole workshop here because I know it's a lot. Yeah. So I'm just going to try and name these now. The second thing is that we can notice our body data, our body knowledge, and what to do with it, which is our body wisdom. The third thing is that we can believe what we notice, even if we can't articulate it. And the fourth thing is that we can notice good stuff, the stuff that really is working for us in our bodies, in our body spirit, and we can have more of it. We can notice it and have it and have more of it which is really helpful when you're in a stressful world and there's a negativity bias. So I'm assuming that for each of the things you just described, that part of the training and the practice are finding ways to experience those principles in a way that you embody them and learn them so that you're practiced at it. Is that right? So, yeah, these are powerful ways, but they that we probably don't come in, most of us at this time, looking first for the ideas. Mm-hmm. We're looking for something that we're resonant. Mm-hmm. And what happens for most people is through some experience, these ideas begin to make sense. These physical ideas, these dancing ideas make sense. Oh, they help the mind dance too. The mind wants to be organized with the experience. And that kind of does make it a spiritual practice, right? When your mind wants to be in agreement with how to proceed, how to be, it's a way of being. Mm-hmm. And interplay offers that, you know, but in a creative sense too. So are most of the people that show up to, do they have a, a background in movement practice or is it just a whole range of folks yeah it's a range i've referenced a lot of the interplay practice as filled with unlikely dancers Mm. but there's just as many unlikely poets and unlikely singers that's one of the most amazing things is that when folks come whether they feel like they're very ordinary and mundane in their practice or whether they are a highly skilled artist the sense of truing to the mechanics of their own voice and stories, it's so amazing to watch people feel like they're popping out into themselves and they have that shine of truth and wisdom. Here are a few interplay participants and leaders describing some of the interplay principles and experiences they've had, starting with dancer-storyteller Masanko Banda. My ability to sing is what surprised me. And that has come because interplay gives you the confidence to allow whatever it is that wants to come out of your body to come out. Modalities that are very simple, very accessible. I've been able to do them even with translation, with people who don't understand English but they know what it means to bring their hand up to somebody else's hand. They know what it means to tell their story. Sometimes I would just love to tone along with whatever was playing, but at other times, especially when I was facing into the floor, I don't know if it was the earth, but this very, it felt like a very ancient voice or very voice I certainly never heard come out of me, but that 
it felt really good to let that voice come. That was Interplay Life Practice leader Kokitani. Here are writer Kira Allen and Bebo Love U.S. founder Soinka Rahim. You know, another tenet or principle of, of Interplay is exformation. And the idea that the body takes in information all day, every day, and we never have a space to exform. Yeah, there's something called notice, 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 right? And so the first time you notice, it's just a little bit like data. But as you collect data, then you see a pattern. And once you understand the pattern, then you develop wisdom. And it gives you a sense of internal authority about how, how and what your body needs. Bebo is a focused breath with sound. Breathe in, breathe out. One of our main practices is incrementality. We start out in honoring uh, our bodies and checking in with the body. And then in a very incremental way, from partnering to one-on-ones, to smaller groups, to the larger group, to learn and teach each other. I've seen people just open up right there. And I've seen people back back and just witness. But that was an offering in the beginning. You can witness if you want. Like we have really accomplished artists, but we have people doing interplay in prison, in detention centers, in mental health centers. We all of us need, if we get a chance to feel that creative, generative, artful energy in us moving. And so, yeah, it's all over the place. <laughs> Part three, trust and the fruitful garden. One of the things that just jumps out to me is that a primary characteristic of everything that you've described so far is, number one, you said you have to be brave so that there is a, an element of risk and vulnerability. And obviously, none of it works unless there's an element of trust that rises up to help someone move forward into, in many cases, an unknown, an unknown practice unknown people. So could you talk about trust in the context of your work? Oh my, such a good noticing, Bill, <laughs> right? Trust, for me, in my body, I don't invite people into safety because I have not experienced the world as safe, even in safe environments like churches or therapy rooms. So I don't understand safety as a condition but what I do understand is resonance and connection and incrementality and respect and dignity. And so I, because I think I'm very sensitive to being shunned or shamed myself, I tend to, and Phil does this too, we both are actually more introverted than extroverted. We tend to be shy, but deeply interested in connection. I trust myself. So I want to learn how to trust myself. And that is easier when I'm in my body, like when I'm not trying to make it up out of some psychological framework. Okay, my body today, I just threw my back out. I trust that I can sit up straight. 
I'm going to be able to walk for not too far. I trust that. It's like trusting real stuff, mm-hmm. trusting real patterns in my experience and in yours. I trust you because we've had some conversations. I, you have also, you have these beautiful credentials. So I look and see what's there and I, I have knowingness in my body about that. So that's the kind of inner authority of noticing that we would hope to build up. I'll just say the movement in interplay over the years for racial equity and transformation just has made it, once again, more clear how that the collective sense of lack of safety for people of color, for people who've been under a white supremacist system to show up in diverse spaces at all. It's like that What's trustworthy about that, right? It's not trustworthy. So the fact that people have courage and desire to have this, especially Black women and men and Indigenous folks who are coming into interplay, emerging leaders, like that they're coming in because they're saying, this is, I need this. I don't know if I trust you, but I will trust myself and I, because I can trust my body. And then watching people have to learn again is it, I would say, I would call it safe enough. Let's get a little bit more into the history because you had a path of discovery, a process of discovery and invention and improvisation that ended up being more than just a little dance company doing some interesting things. It ended up being what some people would call a movement of practice of relationships, of different versions of the work in different places where it has taken root. Could you talk about that journey? Yeah. Improvising, not having a big plan, watching one thing lead to another. At the same time, I am a I'm a co-founder with a colleague who has a lot of organizational brilliance. His dad, Phil's dad, was a business professor at I Indiana University. Phil's a graphic designer. He has designed all of our stuff. And he did educational programs that he designed himself. <laughs> and I am really good at gathering people for some strange reason. So gathering people and co-designing together, making things, short things, workshops, designs, and watching what happens. I really think that what happened is that in interplay, we created the alchemical space for the right things for the earth to show up, like a good garden. Mm-hmm. It's a very fruitful garden. And each at each step, it just surprised us, not just me and Phil, but everybody. Like I remember early, we drew people together in a week-long workshop up in the wine country in old Dorothy's Rest Retreat Center did a bunch of stuff, and then we didn't do much for a whole year. And we came back the next year. I think it was an ISIS oasis, another retreat center of infamy. And the ability in the bodies in performance had leapt without any practice. Like they remembered and wanted and longed for something, and it was like something was happening without any work. Like watching these magical things and happen. One of our performers, Masanko Banda from Malawi, grew and developed his understanding of his Malawian story, like in this 
California context. Like he wasn't talking about it, right? And now that's what he primarily brings. And like the, watching that like build up and then how he takes that into environments also that help people and lift people back up out of the muck that they're in, the social muck of prison life or war or whatever it is. And I just, just keeping seeing that. So once the thing was organized, I think Phil and I just recognized this thing, as long as there's enough of this organization, these components going on, whoever is leading it will probably be close enough to the zone that creates a good garden, a healthy space. And that's what we've seen happen. And people have been very astonished at Phil's and my generosity about that, both financially and just our willingness. But I think it is because he and I have a deep knowing and a deep longing for what really works for bodies and souls. We just know it in our body and we want that for others. And it can have lots of good organizations. So I do believe Interplay is a body-wise organization that is going the speed of the body, not too fast, not too slow, within its means, and we are not trying to spread it with a kind of a launching energy. We think it's a grassroots movement, yeah. And it, but it is standing up and moving around in the world like itself. It's so cool. So it would be great if you could describe the Interplay ecosystem, because when I look at the list of leaders and geography and the clearly very different versions of the story and all the off-ramps that have been created. It's quite impressive. The Interplay website has a directory of leaders that lists over 450 people from 39 states and 11 countries. And these are folks that have been through your training, who are actively involved in Interplay organizing and advocating and mentoring others now. I know that you and Phil didn't set out to build an international network of fellow travelers, but that's what seems to have transpired. Can you reflect a bit on how and why this happened? I want to talk about mirror neurons mm -hmm. first because it's so important that we know that our bodies are already designed, kinesthetically designed, so that I can feel in my body the movement of others, the movement of a voice, the movement even of an intention, mm -hmm. I can feel it in my body mm -hmm. through mirror neurons, which we have all this great science now to name this. I knew this before. I was so grateful to realize it, that I was picking up stuff from other bodies, both icky stuff, horrible stuff, and beautiful stuff. And like the way that interplay has moved best is body to body. And the, the spiritual language for wh what this is transmission, right? To mission, mit means put across from body to body. And so it can spread when people see something and they feel it, uh, they can recognize it. And it crosses cultures, it crosses oceans. It, and not, And some people see it and they go, they back away, right? This is not for them. They do not want any part of this. It's not where they're what their season for them in their life. It's not in, on their board at all. And fair enough, right? But for the people who do see it, something wakes up and it's, oh, something is is physically, just physically. It's not in their mind. It's not what they were thinking about. It's something happens body to body. So the movement of interplay is waking something up. We talk about the, the, that language in social change right now. Bodies Many bodies want something. 
but they want connection, they want belonging, they want resonance, they want to feel true. And so someplace that can provide that. So these people all over the world, you walk around and do a few things and more and more people are getting that. And the hard work of organizing, community organizing, organizing performances, organizing people to learn on a shoestring budget. Happy to do that. A lot of that work has happened. These leaders are, though, picking something up that they know and want and, and that that happens now, not because they know and trust me. That's what's so, the first time somebody led an interplay class that I wasn't leading and I saw what happened, I went, holy moly, it's a thing. It's not me. It's not dependent on my personality, on my visions, on my ideas. So why is this happening in the world? And why are, we know that our institutional patterns that have grown out of more, that grew away from the earth into ideas about how to perform our lives. We just know that's breaking down. It's sickening for a lot of us. So could you take us into the interplay landscape? Uh, what's going on when you walk into the room? So the geography is, can Im- you can imagine people in a room and let's say they're walking around randomly. There's music going on. They're walking in any direction. They're invited to change directions. They're invited to walk backwards. They're invited to stop. They're invited to bump into each other. They're invited to say thank you when they bump into each other. They're invited to run. And then they're invited to move however they however they want. Oh, just walking, stopping, and running, and playing with each other. And the music is going. And that's the instructions. And they start doing it. And within seven minutes of three minutes, sometimes very few minutes, bodies are starting to coordinate. They're starting to follow each other. They're finding that they're leading something. They're standing with another body. A sense of solidarity is there. It's like this living organism is starting to organize itself. And people are in awe that they are feeling something that is not being, it's not instructed what's being created. And if they're not too if they haven't been too traumatized from their life experience and too shamed, if they're able to be there and just be in that kind of a practice for a few minutes, that alone leads to the culture of interplay, which is this set system of recognizable forms that we can call on and repeat like jazz musicians, all these primary birthrights, and people of all kinds entering in as this very full, rich garden that you can feel. And that, this is the part that's got me most excited again and again. It doesn't feel like it's just unto itself. It feels like it's connecting outward to Mm. the space, to other people, to the stars. You don't have to lift your attention up to that at all, but you can feel that you're synced up. And I think the culture of interplay has learned that It doesn't take a lot of effort to be spontaneous, to sync up, and to have synergy. And we know how to do it. So if you're an interplayer in another environment, you start doing that. And slowly, like I'm in co-housing right now as of three years, and slowly my way of being, of affirming and syncing up with people and supporting creativity, people just say it has an effect. Part four, it's not a toy and it's not a tool. 
Given all these interactions, all these relationships that you've had over these many years, are there some stories that rise up from how people have come to the work and then applied the work in different ways uh, out in the, in the world of change work, community work, organizing work, in service to their work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm thinking of three different folks. There's just so many because it's so, this, what we've got, it's so broken down that you can apply little tiny pieces of it into teaching wisdom workshops. It's just applied across the board interdisciplinarily. But I'm going to just name one. I, I know that this isn't going to be visual, but my colleague Kelsey Blackwell recently came out with a book called Decolonizing the Body, Healing Body-Centered Practices for Women of Color to Reclaim Confidence, Dignity, and Self-Worth. And Interplay is one of the primary paradigms that she's using for this. So she gathers groups of women of color, and she does interplay-based practices, and she writes. And the inspiration of watching her really speak specifically to her context about the suffering and how to regain that sense of health. So decolonizing in her context really means not just the institutional thing, but it really means coming all the way into what is it for me to be in my health. Now, she's a person who is already a she wrote for magazines. She was in some Buddhist leadership before she found Interplay. And something in her kind of just went, huh. And this, the approach made a big difference to her. Mari Campbell in Scotland is a fiddler. She's highly regarded in the folk artist music scene. But more importantly than being a folk artist, Mari has an unusual ability to ground herself into the Scottish lineage on the land of her grandmother on Lismore, an island, and to sing and find and embody through the supportive and improvisational interplay approach like an ancient voice. And in the ancient voice, it's trying to come through. And again, the Scottish people having experienced an oppression of that voice, as many indigenous peoples have. At noon, the fish attacks the glen, or down the burn to steer, to steer my jaw. Gimme, gimme the euro gloaming grey, it marks my heart's it cheery, to meet the only ring my ain't kind dearie oh oh the hill the evening star tells bucked in time is near my joy oh an ocean fair And she's bringing that through and gathering people to do that in their own way in Scotland. In India, the the work of my friends Hazel and Prashant and others, Sukma, in these different contexts, like the willing, the courageous willingness to take this kind of support system 
where you don't have anything, you don't have a lot of money or resources or any of that. For interplay, you don't need that. You just need a body and others. And so being able to have people who are lepers, people who are like so squashed in the caste system, people, just one of the most astonishing things is just working with the trans people, trans groups in India, my friend, just supporting them to shine in unto themselves. It's like watching people do this. And I've had occasions to be in these rooms and see people working and partake. And, and the same things are happening like in Atlanta, that's a very strong place of working on the race realities and restoring such wholeness out of such brokenness. And the wholeness is in the bodies. And it's going to take a long time because it can't just happen in bodies. It has to happen systemically. So if interplay could teach the bodies what they want, then we can create a system to match it. But what we, if we keep trying to create systems that we think will help but don't include the bodies, that is not good medicine. <laughs> so a good portion of Western culture, which in many ways become a world culture, has been to center the intellect and a, a framework and a story about humans as rational creatures and cause-effect and predictability, all of which have, in many cases produced amazing things, but leaving a lot of things behind. And one of them is, it's a movie that I bring up all the time where the pre-art artist is basically conducting the village, the tribe, in something everybody just knows, which is, depending on where you are, the similar practice, which is movement, voice, image, a complete understanding and belief that there are powers above and beyond just the material and a, a language and a, a ritual and a practice that helps bring us in contact with, with something other than just the here and now. And when you describe these three folks out there in the world doing their work, it felt like a mission to reintroduce something that is intrinsic to what it is to be human. And so when you say it makes sense to people when they interact with it, it's like th those memory muscles and neurons are basically going, oh, yeah, 5,000 years ago, my ancestors <laughs> were doing this all the time. And they lived in a world that for them was much more mysterious and they needed it as a survival strategy. And what I hear you saying, and it's my own belief, is that we still need it as a st survival strategy to make sense and meaning in a world that we like to kid ourselves into thinking <laughs> we've got it figured out, but it's very obvious that we don't. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I think we now have a theory and some support for epigenetics, right? And that our bodies, our DNA um, is part of carrying streams of intelligence. So why do our family feel important to us? Why aren't we just robotic around our families? And so much deeper things that people are remembering and knowing and caring about. With the interplay folks, I want to just call it knowingness, a sense of knowingness, especially once you're a little bit steeped in it. You've done a program or something, you go, yeah, I know, I know something about this. And how does it apply to me and where does it want to take me? And it, our 
I've done quite a bit of study and exploration myself in a appreciative way in indigenous communities, always with the instruction not to borrow. But I have you have to wake that up, right? So those ritual fires, the dancing, the singing, the storytelling, the hooking up, the trance states, the imagination as the motherboard of perception is not a it's not a toy, it's not a tool. It's a home base. And I think that just put bodies in a circle around a fire, that a lot of, does a lot for a lot of people. It just is a good memory, right? But when you add the element of let's also intentionally listen for what wants to come present, the amount of information that is available to us when we ask, when we have our own motherboards warmed up and on, and know how to receive it, it's like there's so much information that wants to support us. It's ridiculous. And it's just like when when people are just crying all the time about why can't we find the answers? Why do we have this mess? And yet we don't have a yet other than beautiful podcasts like this, a cohesive forum. I'm not sure we should even create one. I hope it just wants to, I dream of, arise like a pink tsunami. (laughs) Something very practical. We've been talking about a three-decade-long journey that has manifested in the world in very real ways. And if somebody out there said, oh, I'd like to buy a ticket on this train, how do people connect Mm. to this practice? Yeah, it is overwhelming to look at our website. We don't know how to narrow it down. But if you go to interplay.org on the web, you will see a lot of information. And I would put my email to get newsletters. And I would just start watching that stuff go by and see if there's any expression of that that is interesting. If you think you really are, might be an interplayer, look at the list of locations and geographies. We're now, like so many organizations, on Zoom as well. And yes, we dance, we move, we tell our stories, we create. We are not inhibited at all about the media. So I'm, there's just so many options. But looking for, if you are if you think you might want a bit of a bigger bite, looking for a secrets of interplay that gives you both some of the strategies mm-hmm. as well as playing. The workshop or something. Is that what that is? That's yeah. a workshop, and, yeah. And I would imagine there are so many in this list. There's just lots of contacts that if you live in a particular place, it looks like just states all over the country and countries all over the world. There are people probably in your backyard that have some connection. And that also is a place to to make connection, right? Yep, that is. If, uh, If somebody were, let me go back to just to close this with, if you would say, what is this good for? Some people thank me for it because it saved their life. Mm. It's certainly an antidepressant because when you start moving and singing a little bit and you don't have to be a good singer, you don't have to be good at any of this. This is not about being a good something. It's good if you're lonely and we have an epidemic of that. And you don't have to be even out of your chair to feel connected, right? So it is not a solo practice. It's a, a connectional practice. So it's definitely good for that. And it is really good at getting to know your neighbors in a way that's surprising that you wouldn't normally because of the way the prompts work. And people always say that very quickly after one workshop is, oh my gosh, I just feel like I know these people so much more. And then you build on that. And then 
it's really good if there is some kind of a sense of a creative in you that wants to grow in any form. You don't have to be good in any of them, but you will definitely grow as you embody and ensoul you show up as a mover or as a voice. Yeah. And other things pop out, weird things, like people start doing amazing weird things that are not related at all to what we were doing in the room, just because that's what happens. <laughs> it occurs to me that almost any organized group of people where mm -hmm. people would like to go beyond the, the water cooler, particularly in, in those kinds of work environments where interacting and tapping into each other's creativity is an important part of the work, that this is a good vitamin, as you say. It is. For me, it's also a crucial, necessary reset. So I don't wake up in the morning and start dancing. <laughs> I don't start singing. But if I do seven minutes of warming up with my buddies and in interplay, seven minutes, I feel reset. Mm. So I think it resets people to our human nature in an easy, graceful way that gives that gives you a sense of, okay, I can go on just to reset, keep resetting. Where are we on the planet? Where are my feet? Here's my body. There's your body. Hello. One of the things that's always guided me in my work is I'm not an easy believer in the belief. I come to belief through practice, through experience. And there are many practices that that are out there that basically say, take my word for it. And this is clearly not one of them. It is, come on in here and do some of this stuff and it'll either come to you or not. And if it does, it's all yours. <laughs> There's no special book that memorize or whatever. It's going to be yours. It's what human creativity is best at, is handing it over. I think the planet and the divine, if those are even separable, mm -hmm. tend to be plain spoken and not pushy. Mm -hmm. That's good. Cynthia, this has been a great way to start my day. It's also a good place to, again, give thanks to our listeners who, sitting here in my little closet studio, I picture in my mind's eye, you know, lying back, maybe driving, walking, taking time to listen and ponder and reflect on the many, many different voices that rise up and make their presence felt on this show. I know their stories and perspectives have been a blessing to me over these years, and I sure hope the same is true for you. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's Hosted by yours truly, Bill Cleveland, our theme and soundscape rise up from the miracle head, hand, and heart of Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe, and our inspiration comes from the ever-present but totally mysterious presence of Ook 235. If you have any questions or comments or recommendations for guests, drop us a line at csac at artandcommunity.com. And if you're a fan of the show, please share it with your friends and enemies. And if you would like to include the show on your website, drop us a line and we'll forward everything you need to join the Change the Story Network. Thank you all for listening and please stay well, do good, and spread the good word. <laughs>